How I ran an epic one-shot for 13 players and lived to tell the tale. A group of friends and I recently had the idea to create a one-shot for 12 players. The idea was that we would split the players into three groups of four, have three DMs that could run the group simultaneously, then bring them all together for a massive boss battle with 12 players and three DMs at one table. In the end, we ran for 13 players as someone else wanted a part of it. This is, at first glance, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. But it worked surprisingly well. Stage 1 – The Hero's Ascension So, we met each group two days before the event to build characters. We decided to build at level 14, specifically because one of the DMs wanted the possibility of someone playing absurd. No one played absurd. A few players already had characters in mind. Some had done up character sheets already. For those players, it was mostly rolling stats, enjoying the atmosphere, and helping other players with their characters. Some of my favorites included a Shadow Sorcerer using the Spellpoint variant, a PAM Sentinel Eldritch Knight with a Scottish accent, an Arcane Archer who dual-wielded hand crossbows, a Changeling Arcane Trickster slash Moon Druid multiclass, a Furball Grave Cleric of Concordia, a homebrew goddess in my campaign setting, goddess of all clerics, a centaur swords bard from the player who's made three out of three of his character centaurs. They always have the same name, but a different personality and class. We think they must be related, despite not living in the same campaign worlds. The DMs had also made three backup characters, in case we had overtuned something and the worst happened. Once PCs were made, it was nearing 6pm, the session having started around 4. Not wanting some of our first time players to leave without getting to play, we had designed a few shorter basic quests to bring the parties together. The kingdom of Aselnir is at war. Resources are spread thin. In this hour of desperation, an agent of the crown has approached each group to deal with certain supernatural incursions that cannot be otherwise dealt with in this time of conflict. A duke has revealed himself to be a powerful vampire, and the players have tracked him to his castle, where they must kill him before more people are turned or killed. The demons of the abyss have opened a gateway into the material plane at the most opportune time, and with no other defense available, the party must stop the invading fiends. A group of corrupted celestials are rumored to have desecrated an ancient temple in the desert and taken up residence within. This is the quest I DM'd, and I can honestly say that people do not get to use celestial stat blocks enough. A deva, a kirin, and a planetar were under the command of a devil named Hasatan, who was just a normal lizard stat-wise. He escaped alive. Each of the groups made it through two to three encounters themed around this challenge. The environment and progression was left to each DM themselves. Afterwards, each group was given a selection of magic items, one common, three uncommon, and one rare per person in the party, to be split as they saw fit. Stage 2 – The Victory Feast Having completed their respective goals, the parties returned to the capital city of Aselnir, which shared the same name. A great feast was to be held in the central courtyard of the city, open to prince and pauper, hero and healer alike. Among those attending were King Siegebert, a loud man that I can't imagine as anyone other than Brian Blessed, Lady Tanya, advisor to the king and adventurer enthusiast, and Professor Gambledore, Archmage of Marimol's University of Pact Magic and Lizard Folk Druid Practices, aka Horseward School of Eldritch Craft and Lizardry. During the festivities, some of the more perceptive folk began to notice strange phenomena occurring. Electrical sparks shoot off of metal cutlery, corners of tablecloths rising and blowing in a non-existent wind, and a faint rumbling that grew louder and louder over time. Soon, this rumble caught the attention of all, as it aggressively rose in volume. 
Everyone braced themselves, expecting something, anything to happen. And then all went silent. Ominous though the silence was, one attendee had yet to notice. King Siegebert finished his joke at the high table. And then I said, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? With a loud crack, a Githyanki skyship appeared over the city, and red dragons began to disembark in droves. Gambledore cast what appeared to be Meteor Swarm, but it had no effect on the ship, as a psionic shield absorbed the blast. The players and nobility began to brainstorm. There were four clear tasks that needed to be completed. Defend the city, get the shield down, get up to the ship, get inside the ship. The chief priests of the Cathedral of Concordia had the idea that ringing the mithril bell that hung in the tallest tower may disrupt the shield. It would because plot. Lady Tanya claimed to have a method of transport to the ship, but required a special item from her quarters at the castle, at this point cut off from them by Gith. She claimed there was a secret passage to the castle that they could use. Gambledore announced that he owned an artifact called the Cannon of Del Rolo that he won off a bespectacled silver-haired man in a game of chance, as well as an apparatus of Qualish to fire out of it, which were both at the university. Tasks assigned, the group split into three, the guards and mages took up defensive positions, and the game was on. Stage 3 – The Three Quests Now, I was DMing Lady Tanya's quest, and I only got vague details about the other two. But I was involved in the planning, so I know what was supposed to happen, and I did hear some of the highlights. Stage 3A – The Fat Lady Rings, aka Take Me to the Church On the way to the cathedral, the group is waylaid by a young red dragon and two Githyanki warriors. The centaur bard I mentioned earlier did his bardliest on the dragon, rolled a natural 20 and was quite unsurprised when it did not work anyway. Standing in the shadows, anyone with a passive perception of greater than 25 notices a solitary drow standing in an alleyway, staring motionless at the skyship, waiting for something, though the party has no way to reach them. They also see a flash from the shield, as if something just tried and failed to break through it. Traveling on to the cathedral, they meet some priests carrying the bell away, trying to save it from possible raiders, and convince them to give it to them to use. Once at the cathedral, the party is confronted with a statue that had stood on the site since before there was even a cathedral there. A statue of a badger-headed angel that on their entry comes to life, announces itself to be named Kethys and accuses them of stealing the bell. Immune to reasoning and logical thought, the angel attacks. The party runs. They get the priests to the bell tower and send them up to start ringing, while they ran for their lives and drew Kethys away from the priests. Kethys is a homebrewed creature by one of the other DMs. Not sure what he can do, but I hear it's probably for the best that they ran. Stage 3B – The Cannon of Del Rolo, aka Ook Before they leave, the party is told the way to the school, that the apparatus of Qualish is in his office and that the cannon is on the, t and that the, cannon is on the top floor of the library tower. He warns the players not to anger the librarian and not to kill him if he attacks them. Only subdue, as he is the only one who knows where some of the oldest books are. The party fights through hordes of Githyanki on their way to the university. Once inside, they seem safe, as it is not being attacked yet. They get the apparatus, spend a minute or two learning how to use it, then head to the library. On the ground floor of the library, they find an Arcanaloth and a Mesoloth stealing arcane tomes. The Shadow Sorcerer goes for the, you seem to want these books, what would happen if I burned them, method of negotiation, and immediately gets hit with a finger of death. Professor Snatagast, a lizard folk druid hiding on a higher floor, tells the party that the librarian is not currently in one of his rages, not having heard about the attack. At that moment, a crashing of glass is heard as a red dragon flies through the roof of the library before being absolutely destroyed by a creature on the top floor. Afterwards, an ape-like screech echoed throughout the library. 
When the party arrives on the top floor, they were confronted by Harry and Scarion, the librarian, a 10-foot-tall giant gorilla spellcaster. He was angry. He used an Androsphinx's stat block with a few spells changed out and spellcasting ability switched to Int, with the actual score numbers also swapped. We got all three roars off. One of the party members actually died fighting the librarian. The shadow sorcerer had a wand of wonder and became charmed. The wand created a cloud of butterflies around his ally when he targeted them with it. Though seemingly harmless, when Harrion knocked him down with a legendary action, no one could see that he was dying until it was too late. The player did not actually mind his character dying, as he was quite happy with the backup character he got to use, a Githyanki barbarian slash fighter that was on that dragon that just died and had suffered severe memory loss due to impact. He remembers he was fighting, but not his name or what side he was on. Two of the party members squeeze into the apparatus and fire it out of the cannon de Rollo. The others have magic items that allow flight, so they can follow. Stage 3C The Cloak of Mordekainen, aka Slime Time Broadcasting Yay! My quest! Here we go! My group had a fifth player, which was fine. We hopefully had the encounters balanced for five players plus the NPC. The players followed Tanya to an unassuming wall, which, once she muttered the command phrase, formed a glowing circular glyph, shattered into several pieces, seemingly having developed a fault after a long time out of use. I pulled out a few cut-up pieces of paper with parts of the glyph on them and the players solved the puzzle in real life. This caused the glyph to open, loudly. A doorway into a small chamber with a ladder leading down underground was revealed. Once down there, the players were ambushed from behind by a Githyanki Supreme Commander who heard the noise and frankly did not think this ambush through. The wall closed behind them on the third round, plunging the room first into dim light, then into darkness. But she was dead already, so it did not affect the fight. Going deeper, the tunnel became slimy. The ground and walls were slick and the terrain difficult. Some of the higher intelligence members of the group began to receive mental messages, snippets of musings on the presence of a powerful mind, an alliance, a long-awaited opportunity, and six little mites to be dealt with first. They arrived at a long metal bridge across an open cavern, so long that even with one of the party members holding a bullseye lantern and bright and dim light each covering 60 feet, they could not see the far end nor could they see the walls, the ceiling, or the bottom of the pit below. The Eldritch Knight lit a flask of oil and dropped it. After several long seconds, they saw the light go out. They never heard it hit the bottom. Tanya told them that this bridge was over an underground reservoir that the city used for drinking water. The bridge had no rails or walls and was also covered in a similar slime, though this was more sticky than slick. The party cleric, who had obviously watched the episode of Critical Role where something all too similar occurred, suggested a rope to tie the group into a people chain. Insert Jurassic Park reference here. Using full movement and dash on a bridge that was difficult terrain meant 30 feet per round. Each round the telepathic voice, seemingly amplified by the bridge, rung out as sound and psychic energy, as the party heard the megalomaniac-style ramblings of whatever was down here. Wisdom saves all round every round. It was a lowish DC, so they were mostly fine, but eventually one cracked, and so the goblin rogue stood catatonic for the round and had to be carried by the paladin. There was only one other failure crossing the bridge, right at the end. The goblin booked it off the ledge of the bridge five feet from the other side of this 200-foot-long trek. PSA, ropes are a good investment for any adventuring party. The next room had a gargoyle in it. Not the monster, just the water feature. Water poured out of its mouth, down through a graded area of floor. Or rather, it did, until an aboleth tentacle broke through the grating and ripped the head clean off. Then it climbed into the room, accompanied by nine Sahagan of various types, as the room began to fill with water. The Eldritch Knight cleared four Sahagan with a single fireball, then succumbed to the aboleth's enslave ability. 
The wizard then cast Banish. So long, Abeleth, we barely knew thee. All the enslaved Sahagan and the Eldritch Knight were released. Not that it mattered much, as the party had just incinerated half of their companions and were going to pay. A massacre of various fishmen and fishwomen swiftly followed. Each round, the water level rose by five feet, but the party got through and climbed the ladder out, at which point I heard that the others had completed their quests and went full cutscene mode. Quick explanation of safety mechanism that stops the water flooding the castle. Quick explanation of how banishment left the Aboleth stranded in the plain of water, as the wizard held concentration on it for the full duration. Quick description of dash up to Lady Tanya's quarters and grabs a sparkling robe of stars in blue and red. Quick answer to the question, what is it? What does it do? The cloak of Mordenkainen. He was a great wizard. The cloak is said to grant incredible spellcasting prowess. This one is a replica though. But you know, aesthetics is important for these kinds of things. Quick run up to the castle roof. Tanya transforms into her adult silver dragon form, the human-sized cloak still visible tied around her neck. Cue awe from some of the players. Quick description of chaos in the city below, and of the badger-headed angel who they can see chasing the other party through the streets. Cue a what the hell from the players, and a that's what I thought from me. They swoop down and save the others. Quick description of how a cannon goes off behind them, and a metal barrier flies through the air and smashes a hole in the ship, pursued by a broom of flying and whatever else the party is using to fly. On to the final battle! Stage 4. It's the final beatdown. We got everyone into the same room. It's crowded, but not too bad. The players are reminded of how they all got to the ship. We tell them that the apparatus of Qualish is basically unusable in its current condition. Then describe how, as Lady Tanya in her dragon form lets the party down, she is ripped from the edge of the ship by an adult red dragon, and they fall spiraling until they smash into the bell tower below. The bell stops ringing. The shield comes back up. We tell the players that if anyone has catnap prepared, now is the time to use it. About six players take a spell-assisted 10-minute short rest. Now is probably a good time to mention that throughout the quest, anytime someone was incapacitated, we've been taking note of it. Those six players now join the ranks of the rogue who went catatonic on the bridge and one other character from a different group. As I hastily wrote out sheets to track all the HP in the battle ahead, the other two DMs described the scene. Bodies of Githyanki warriors strewn across the floors of corridors, no real resistance as they delve deeper into the ship towards its power source. As they arrived at the entrance to the room, they saw a group of two drow warriors and five mind flayers, one with a much larger mass of facial tentacles, a Eulatharid, and one with much paler skin and a dark robe, an Alhoon, the last seemingly under the distrustful gaze of the Ulitharid as it completed some rituals around whatever was powering this particular Gith ship. The ritual complete, the glass covering shattered, and up rose an elder brain. After a brief telepathic big bad evil guy speech, something something, destruction, domination, etc., all the Ilithids simultaneously spun around and attacked. We collected initiative rolls and had everyone sit in that order for ease of management. We asked everyone if they could plan their turns in advance, then turns would have a bit of a time limit on them if too much umming and awing happened, and they would keep talking as quietly as possible when not taking an action so we could hear each player on their turn. And so the battle began. An early hold monster from the wizard was cut off with the Elder Brain's break concentration ability. A lot of mind blasts went off and several people got stunned. The paladin summoned Griffin's steed died. When the drow were killed, they released two intellect devourers. Some greater invisibility was cast and sneak attacks were had by all. Yes, someone got their brain eaten by a brain dog. We brought the player behind the DM screen to run his now intellect devourer controlled body as an enemy. When the elder brain believed the party near defeated, he seized the opportunity to turn on the Alhoon. 
Unfortunately for him, the players did not damage the Alhoon even once that fight, and he immediately made a Star Wars TFA reference and cast a 5th level Scorching Ray into several Mind Flayers. A couple of other players were knocked unconscious. The Gith Barbarian slash Fighter backup character failed 3 death saves. I think the Shadow Sorcerer got a natural 20 on one of his. The Brain Dog controlling the PC crawled out of its host once it died and was hit through the base of the ship by one of the party members. We noted that it hit Gambledore in the head as he finished off a group of Gith Yonki on the ground. Eventually, the Elder Brain was brought down. Seeing this, the Alhoon tried to plane shift away, but the wizard got the counterspell. We forgot that innate casting has no components, but it did not matter. The Ulithar had got his plane shift countered by the Centaur Bard, and in the end, only one Mind Flayer made it out alive. The Grave Cleric got a revivify off on the character who died to Brain Dog. Yay! At this point, Kethis, the badger-headed angel from earlier, burst through the ship's hull. After a loud proclamation that he would destroy them all, he was smashed through the opposite side of the ship by a red dragon that was chasing him. Then, since they had a diamond left over, he went over to their dead Githyanki backup character, used Revivify on him, and pushed him out of the ship at the same time. And so it was that that player died three times. Step 5. The Out-of-Character After-Party once we ended the game and everyone calmed down from their celebrations, we gave out some slips of paper we had printed off, with a space to vote other players for certain awards we had created. They each had a little disclaimer on the bottom, in the style of the ones in front of each official book. We had told the players there would be prizes, but to avoid metagaming, the only one we told them the name of was Best Roleplaying. We had some of the prizes available as per party, awarded by the DMs. Others were determined by player vote. A few of the categories were Best How Do You Want to Do This Worst Luck most likely to seduce a dragon. Least likely to go on a quest again. Most likely to cast fireball on themselves. Most likely to overthrow the governing monarch, establishing a communist regime, and ruling over a Silnir with an iron fist. Most likely to become a lich. MVP of the final battle. The prizes came in the form of plastic drinking cups with a label stuck to the side of them in rainbow comic sands, filled with various sweets. Overall, this is the kind of thing people are quick to point out is not going to work. In general, I agree for a normal campaign, this would have been hell, but the amount of fun I had as a DM running this mess was the most I've had in ages. All the players loved it, some have asked when the next one is, and I am considering it. Even the first time players picked up enough rules to play, have fun and not really get outshone by the ones who've been playing longer. I would encourage anyone who wants to try something of this scale to do so, if you can get enough people to run it. 10 out of 10 would DM again. 13 players and 3 DMs. Amazing! Despite the challenges of that many players, the DMs managed to craft a game for new players and veterans alike. Have you ever played in a huge game like this? Please let us know and comment below. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel All Things D&D. Our next video will be posted in two days, so stay tuned for more amazing Dungeons & Dragons content.